joining us today on Dead Headspace, where you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pandora, Spotify, Stitch, and many, many more platforms. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, and this is my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Hello. We are joined today by Philip Fricassi. Please tell me if I said your last name correctly. Yes, correct. The GoFundMe started, uh, Horror Writers for Black Lives Matter, if you take that in any direction that you want. Yeah, the fundra- I mean, the fundraiser was, um, man, it was not, it, it, it was really just a whim. I, um, I was frustrated, as, a, as most um, Americans were and are, and um, I didn't feel like I was doing enough. My wife and I donated to some, some places, and... Her company um, uh, matched our donations, which was very generous. Um, and, you know, and there's the, the protest and the marching and, and that kind of stuff, which is all great. It's amazing. And, and, and but I just didn't feel like I was doing enough. And, and so so I just kind of said, you know, in the HWA, the Horror Writers Association, um, they hadn't really, you know, they made a statement. But, again, they weren't really doing anything. And. And so I just said, well, you know what? I know a lot of horror writers, um, a lot of writers. You know, a lot of these guys are my friends. A lot of the reviewers I know very well. Um, I have a, you know, a decent following on social media. I got a few thousand Facebook friends. I got a couple thousand Twitter followers and, you know, about a thousand people on Instagram and stuff. So I figured, you know, maybe I just put together a quick GoFundMe um, and 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 uh and try and get horror writers and, and people associated with horror um, to to help me kind of raise a little bit of money. And, and I had heard about the NAACP Legal Defense Fund um, through a couple of celebrities, actually, that had uh, posted a lot of uh, – given them a lot of money. And so I did some research on them, and I really liked, really liked what I read. Um, their founder, Sherilyn Eiffel, seems really smart. I like – that they were into educating people as well as um, helping, you know, uh, underrepresented uh, people of color represent themselves, you know, for legal and and whether it be for for police brutality or, or false arrest or any sort of civil rights issue. Um, you know, they came in and they protected those people. So I really I, and I, you know, I really researched it and I really liked what they were doing and. So, yeah, so whatever. So I launched the fund. I, I posted it on Facebook. I posted it on Twitter. I I probably emailed or messaged maybe 20 people um, that I knew had reach um, that I knew would be behind something like this. You know, everyone from Laird Barron to Josh Mallerman to Paul Tremblay, um, just guys and girls who I know in the space who I knew would be like, yeah, I'll, I'll retweet it or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you a signal boost. Brian Keene uh was amazing um and then reviewers like shane keen and you know sadie hartman also known as mother horror they really went to town on it so so it just kind of blew up you know i guess the kids call it it went viral or whatever and i'd put a thousand dollar gofundme target on that fund and we blew past that in about an hour and then we were at 20 and that changes to 2500 and we were through that in about the next five minutes. Um, so I changed, I doubled it to 5,000 and we hit that before the end of the day. 
And now it's at, you know, we're about a week or so later, week and a half maybe after the fact. And we're at something like $24,000 uh, that was raised for the uh, for the uh, legal defense fund. So I'm really, ha- really proud of the community and I'm really happy that people got behind it. Um, and it's, you know, I just hope it does some good. That's, that's all I, that's all I can hope for, you know, the fight for, 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 um, for human, human rights is, is, is a, an important one. And, and, you know, everyone needs to be represented equally and treated equally. And, and, um, and that's something that's very, very important to me. Um, and so, so I'm glad that it took off. That's great. Uh, yeah, with me and Brendan and everyone at our review platform that had reviews is, uh, we're fully supportive of that. Um, we're glad that someone that actually has the knowledge and the legalities and which cause is the right cause to go to actually create that. So hats off to you for that. Um, and for anyone that's listening that is not aware of maybe where to go, where can they go? And I will post this in the uh, episode notes just so they can see the actual link. Right. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, the easiest thing is probably just to go to the GoFundMe um, website and search um, horror, horror writers for Black Lives Matter, um, and it'll 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 come up on, in in a search. Uh, or you can um, go to my Twitter feed. I have it pinned to my Twitter. Uh, I have it pinned to my Instagram. Um, so, uh, but the best thing is probably just to go to GoFundMe.com and search horror horror writers for Black Lives Matter, and you'll see the uh, and you'll see it there. I'm gonna leave it up. Um, I've had a couple uh, interview requests um, from some podcasters that are maybe going to be doing stuff later in the month or in early July. So um, I'm going to leave it up uh, for a while. Probably, you know, there's really no reason to take it down. It's um, unlike when you raise money for yourself where you're like, okay, I've reached my goal. I can go publish my book or whatever. Um, It's really just an open fund, right? So um, the more people that donate, the better. There's all the money. There's no um, all the money. Every penny goes straight to the uh, legal defense fund because they are a vetted charity through GoFundMe. So there's no fees taken out. Um, there's no commission taken out. It's not going to me and then going to the the charity. Everything every penny goes directly to the charity. So unlike um, you know I don't have to I don't have to turn it off in order to get that money money sent through. It just goes as it comes in. So yeah, so I'll probably just leave it up. I'll probably just leave it up. Um, unless there's a you know good reason to take it down. I would love to see it get $25,000, um, in the next week or so. Uh, and then, you know, who knows, maybe if I can get somebody to, you know, to share it or promote it on a, on a larger platform, you know, we can keep it going. But as long as people are, you know, uh, donating and, and, and to whatever charity they feel comfortable with, whatever charity they're familiar with, that's the important thing. You know, this is just something like you said, a lot of, um, horror writers and a lot of people in the horror writing community didn't really know where to, where to go with their frustration and their anger or their money. And, and so I kind of felt like I created a little bit of a landing pad, uh, for a lot of people who were like, great, perfect. This is, great. I'm going to give 20, 20 bucks here. I'm going to give five bucks here. Or I'm going to give a hundred bucks here. Um, and that, and that made it, and that, you know, kind of allowed them to have a place to vent that, uh, that need to want to help. That's, that's so very true. And I, I love hearing that, um, you 
really just did your uh, your legwork, your research. Um, I know one of one of the things that I was running into, um, running in circles, looking around for a a place or multiple places. Um, and and that's just what you provided is like, look, I've I've done the research. This is a good place for money to go. And the way I've set it up, uh, they're not going to take any fees out of it or anything like that. Uh, it, this is it, it's gold. Um, yeah. Now, I, I know you had said that, you know, you initially made it for a thousand and that that got knocked out in an hour. Um, obviously, you were surprised that happened in an hour. Were you surprised it happened in general? Did you set that goal thinking that you'd be lucky to get just that? Yeah, I was surprised to get it in general. I was think my honest to God thinking was um, I could raise a few hundred bucks. That was what huh. I was on. That was I, when I when I posted it. I posted it on my social media platforms, like I said, and 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 um, and and I thought I thought, oh, you know, maybe we'll raise two or three hundred bucks, you know, four hundred bucks, you know. <laughs> I was like, I'll put the goal <laughs> of a thousand just so we have something to shoot for. Um, and yeah, and it blew up. I mean, I think, you know, like I said, I think like um, and you know, and then it got like you know, Brian Keane once he retweeted it, retweeted it. Yeah, I think I said that right. Um. Then there was definitely a ground, a, a larger groundswell. I think a lot of his followers are pretty passionate, and he and he um and he was a huge proponent of it. Uh, he even mentioned me on his podcast, mentioned the fund on his podcast, you know, last episodes. So that was great. Uh, Josh Mallerman donated books um, that we gave away for people who donated. Almakatsu donated books. Um, so there were a lot of people. Um, kind of jumping in different ways and 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 if you, you can see you know people were and then people were you know messaging me and saying hey i saw that you know josh was giving away books um you know i'll send you some books and i'll send you some books as well and i was like whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> just just post you know just post it on your own social media say you're giving them away you know you don't you don't i don't i kind of wanted to step back a little bit because i was kind of like this is like everyone's thing uh, you know, we do not need to use me as a conduit. I don't mind the work. I, I mean, I'm happy to do it for a good cause. But yo, just put it on your, just pop it up there. Just take it and run with it. So a lot of people started doing that, and um, and and since then it's been it's been it's been still progressing. Like I said, we're at 24. I think just under 24 thousand um, uh, dollars. But actually, I can tell you exactly 23,595 dollars as of today, which is June 16th. So pretty, pretty good. I mean, the community really, really came out. Oh, and I should also mention that HWA um, also shared it. And that was a huge, that was a huge boost as well. Cause they, a lot of people, um, a lot of people who are HWA members uh, came through. Lovecraft Dzine shared it. Strange Eons Magazine shared it. Nightworms shared it. Inkheist shared it. I mean, it was, everybody just kind of came together and blasted it. And it was like a trumpet, you know, just um, just kind of, uh, you know, bellowing across the land and all the all the different tribes came came running, you know, to help. So <laughs> so it was uh, for those fantasy lovers out there. As an for it. Uh, so, yeah, so it was cool. And I'm really I'm, I'm, I'm just happy. You know, I I really I didn't do much. I, I you know, I, I threw it up there. Um, I sent a couple emails. Oh, like <laughs> the one thing that was was very cool was. Um, I was trying to get a kind of a, a resurgence of it, and I sent an email to Mike Flanagan, who uh, recently directed Doctor Sleep and 
um, Haunting of Hill House and a bunch of other stuff like that. And he um, he graciously donated and and tweeted it on his platforms as well. So that was very cool of Mike Flanagan. So go buy his his movie because he's a good guy. I I have to say that in part, you know, obviously that's a huge number. I think you said twenty three five ninety five. Yeah. Um, but also in a way, I'm not super shocked. Just I, it, it reminds me of when the whole quarantine thing hit and we just saw horror authors uh, coming out of the woodwork, giving away stuff for free. Uh, yeah. Philip, I think you 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 gave away one for free, didn't you? Yeah, I gave away a couple. I, yeah, I offered um, a novella in the month of April, and I, and I and I uh, and a different novella in the month of Mar- May, May or March. I always get my M's confused. Whenever the <laughs> quarantine hit, yeah, I offered a couple of novellas. I, I put them into a ebook format, um, and uh, and uh, and I put them up online for free. Yeah, so people could have something to read while they were stuck at home. Yeah, my I know my Kindle's still recovering from uh, all right. the stuff I downloaded in that period. But uh, the the point is, I just I feel like everybody came out and said, you know, I, I want to help. I want to I want to do something to support the mental health of this community. It's I, I'm just I'm I'm at a loss constantly for what a giving community it is. So again, yeah. in a way, I'm I'm not super shocked. Yeah, you know it's interesting. One of the um, I, I write uh, I write for a website called um, Book and Film Globe. Uh, I write um, like book reviews and I do interviews and stuff. Um, I did like a t- um, like a upcoming list of horror books for 2020 stuff like that, you know. Um, and the editor is a is a author named Neil Pollock who's been around for a while. And he made the comment to me once once when I posted something about I think it was I think it was that best of best of 2020 or, or upcoming t- books in 2020 that you should read. And the response was so huge. And he said, you know, I work with a lot of different genres. I work with, you know, he's you know, he's like I said, he's been around and he's I've worked with, you know, literary writers and I work with YA writers and I work with sci fi writers and and as an editor. And he said, but I've never seen the kind of response or the kind of community uh, vibe that you get with horror writers. Like his YA writers can tend to be really snippy with each other and they're, you know, they're very competitive and uh, science fiction has their own clicks and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and, you know, literary writers can be kind of difficult because they're a little, you know, uppity maybe and kind of fall, you know, as it were, not to be. Um, and he's like, yeah, but horror writers, man, you guys are just like a strong, you know, there's definitely a strong community feel. And I and, it, and I really appreciated him saying that. So I agree with you 100 percent. And I think I think we have our problems like anybody. Um, and I think, uh, you know, sometimes I think as a community, we can be a little overzealous to condemn and judge. Um, and and that's a, and that's a negative. But I think the positives are that, you know, they're very passionate. They come together. Um, when, when there's a need, you know, you, you've probably seen fundraisers, um, you know, speaking of Brian Keene, like when Brian Keene burned himself badly, there's a fundraiser and a lot of people contributed when another horror writer's, uh, kid needed to go to school uh, and they needed money for something, you know, there's a lot of people contributed. So I, I do feel like it's a great community. I'm very proud and, um, of, of, of the horror community and I, and it's, it's, it feels good to be part of it for sure. 
Do you have any uh, thoughts or speculation on why horror works that way, but maybe the uh, some of some of the other genres might have more like nitpicky problems? Um, I think it's just if I was just to speculate, I think it's probably more it's personality based. I think, um, you know, I think the culture of horror writers tends to be pretty down to earth. Like I, you know, everyone seems to be pretty. You know, we're kind of gamers slash, you know, uh, kind of that gaming community, but without the snide, <laughs> snide element of it. Um, but no, I think it, and I think, and I think the passion of horror is it's kind of, um, you know, in a way, it's it's kind of a niche uh, that you know when you're into the dark stuff, um, you're kind of part of, you know, a, a lot of other people that are into that sort of stuff. And I think that when you're in, I think that. I think that the darkness of horror attracts people who maybe um, who maybe are better at seeing the light than others because we've seen so much of the dark or because we can see the dark so clearly. Um, I also think that horror writers tend to be a fairly sensitive bunch. When I mean by sensitive, I don't mean um, you know defensive. I mean de- sensitive to issues and sensitive to things that go on in the world and sensitive to f- feelings and 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 you know in a way a lot of horror writers are outliers so I think when we come together um, it's sort of a seeing someone who you feel a certain kinship to uh, like you know hey man if you go to a if you're at a business meeting or a business lunch and you mention that you're a horror writer count how many weird looks you get right and um, but when you go to a horror convention or whatever um, and you're surrounded by people who don't look at you weird who look at you with eager eyes wanting to know you know tell me more. Um, I think that's a, uh, I think it's a really strong feeling. We're, um, I think it's safe to say we're the mis- misfit group that I don't understand why. For me, I feel like horror probably back to when we were able to communicate. What stories did you tell? I'm sure it wasn't, hey, this person fell in love with that person. You're going to talk about like shit that scares people, things to stay away from. Maybe not ghost stories per se. I don't know what they call it back then, but I know that uh, Bigfoot, uh, Gigantopithecus, that's probably where Bigfoot came from, um, from stories of this real giant ape that, you know, stay away from or it might kill you. Um, yeah. I, I just don't understand why we're, I consider us the misfits of genre, um, and I wear that with uh, honor because – like you were saying to piggyback off your point, basically we unveil our everything. Um, the best writers in horror bleed on the page um, and, and they just reveal who they are. That takes courage. That's a brave act, in my opinion. And yeah. there's a lot of reception that's like, I understand. I get it. And I feel better. It's therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're, I mean, look, the, a lot of horror is steeped in mythology, right? It's steeped in the old, you know, and all the old, um, all the old room, ru- you know, uh, rumors and and all the old stories, you know, that've been come down from, you know, thousands of years. So I think it's, I think, you know, a lot of the horror is rooted in 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 that kind of mysticism or mythology or or folklore, and I think that's a huge, I think that's a huge reason why, you know, people who gravitate toward that. Um, are definitely looking, you know, looking to tie into something ancient and um, and long standing. So it's it's it it, it 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 can feel 
you know, powerful to talk about that kind of thing and to continue to express those sort of like early uh, fears and uh, early, you know, uh, early horrors um, <clears throat> that ultimately tie to who we are as, as humans and 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 to this to our society and and I think m- nowadays people maybe there's there's a lot of there's more of a focus on sociological horror you know where people are talking a little bit more about the horrors of the real world and um that we live in today and uh maybe less about the you know the monsters of of old but um hopefully we'll continue to do both but i think it's i think it's interesting that we can address you know use what we've learned to address um modern horrors of civil uh you know civil unrest and inequality and 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 things like that so i i I, that's kind of I think where I'm at with maybe saying we're probably sensitive is that I think we're sensitive to the present woes of of humanity because we are so steeped in the past woes of humanity. So I think it it gives us something to uh, to use as a base for all the things that are happening in our world now. It's you know we know how scary it is um, and we're not afraid to write about it and uh, and you know hopefully get other people thinking about it. For sure. And just uh, one thing about um how i don't know how you two are but when people ask at work people know what i do now they know i write hard but at first i i mean like i bring a book with me everywhere i go so people see what i write sometimes it's a weird cover but um when i was a juror last time uh they, they asked like what do you do for fun i'm not gonna lie so i just say basically i write and read what do you write and read horror mainly and right there in my head, I'm like, they're not going to pick me. I'm a juror to decide someone's uh, if someone's going to be charged an X amount of money. I'm not going to get picked because I'm a freak. Yeah, that's how that's how in my mind I perceive how other people perceive me. Do, do you guys feel that way ever? Well, yeah, like I was saying, like I've been in those I've been at those tables where people are like, what do you you know, what do you do when you're not because it, my day job is I I work in film and TV as a location manager so you know when i'm on a when i'm on a set or i'm you know at a lunch with a bunch of crew members or whatever you know they'll say like what do you you know what else do you do when you're not working i say oh i'm a horror writer and i get the i get that that look you know that like you must be well first the first look i get is that you know it's more of a kind of a almost like a a tinge of disgust you know where they just kind of like you, you know where they feel like you told them that you don't bathe very often um and then that's kind of and then that kind of you know maybe turns a little bit into like well i don't i definitely don't respect you but i think i can kind of see how that might be interesting but i'm dismissing it as a whole it's you know and it's too bad i i read a lot of um i read a lot of like posts and and blog posts and 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 social media posts from from writers who have who've encountered that kind of reaction and it, it kind of bums me out. I think a lot of people are like, you know, well, I write supernatural thrillers uh, is kind of what I've started to say to people um, admittedly, because I was sick of getting those looks, you know, and supernatural thrillers don't go a much, you know, a whole lot, you know, a whole lot longer, but at least I don't get the, the, the disgust looks quite as much They're you know, but so it's, it's definitely tricky. Another thing you do is you can tell me you're a horror, you can, you know, you're a horror screenwriter, and they might appreciate that more because that's something they can understand. Everyone likes a horror movie, you know. That's true, even bad ones. Um, right. What's that one with tomatoes? Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Sure. Yeah. 
I mean, that's still like people will still watch that shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I'm really interested because I've been studying up on you, man, uh, for the last few days since you said uh, yes that you'd want to be on the show. Um, the only way I can ask this is what got you into horror, which is what we ask all our guests, but. I'm specifically curious about you because you have so many avenues that are related to horror. So I'd love to see where this goes. Um, well, I've always been a horror reader. Uh, you know, um, like most people, I, you know, was raised on Stephen King and Dean Coons and Clive Barker. And, um, and like most people, I went through phases where I did I stopped reading genre stuff and I read you know maybe more literary stuff or or whatever. But I always came back to it and and, um, and then and I've always been a writer. So I've you know I I've I've written three novels. Well I've I've I shouldn't say that. I originally wrote I in my 30s I wrote like three novels, all of which are literary, character driven fiction. Um, they're not genre. They're not horror. <clears throat> and and I didn't really do anything with them. And then um, in the early, you know, probably right around 2010, I closed my, I had a bookstore for a while. My bookstore went out of business and I started writing screenplays full time. And I sold a couple screenplays and one of them was a Disney movie. Uh, one of them was a Lifetime movie. Um, and then, so I did that for a while and I made okay money doing that. Um but I was still kind of frustrated. And I wasn't getting anywhere. So one day I was just walking around the block and it kind of hit me. It was sort of this epiphany um, where I was like, why the hell aren't I writing horror fiction? Like, I love horror. I'm already writing horror screenplays. Um, I don't know why I don't try my hand at actually doing fiction. And this was like 2015. So only about five years ago. And um and so I wrote a story. It was the first genre story I've ever written. It was called Mother. At the time, it was actually called Cocoon, but it ended up being called Mother. And I had, um, interestingly, I had sort of befriended uh, Laird Barron because I tried to, um, actually tried to uh, option one of his short stories for a screenplay that I wanted to write. And so I was talking to him. I was talking to his agent. Ended up not doing it. I couldn't afford it, frankly. Um, but we, but he and I kind of became, you know, friendly. And so when I wrote the story, I said, I, I, te- you know, I messaged him and I said, hey man, um, I wrote this story. I've never written a genre story before. Would you consider reading it and giving me feedback? And he said, yeah, of course. So I sent it to him. And a few weeks later, he messaged me and he said, hey, can you hop on the hop on a phone call? And I was like, yeah, I can hop on a phone call with Laird Barron. You know, I wrote book. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about my story sure why not and 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 um and we call, and he called me and we spoke for about an hour and a half or so and i still have all the notes from that conversation but basically it opened with like you know um you can do this you know this is a this is a great story and it has flashes of genius and it's very saleable and you can you can do this um and we talked a lot about what he thought would make this story better we talked a lot about what he thought I could do better as a writer. And he and I have had those conversations ad nauseum since then. We're, you know, we're very close friends. Um, 
and he's probably right. He's probably the only person in the world who's read everything I've written, um, including the stuff not published. And um, and so I so I rewrote the story, um, and I sent it to Jordan Crawl at Dynatox Ministries, and um, and he wrote me back and said, "Yeah, I love it. I'd love to publish it as a chapbook." Um, and this is Dunham's, Dunham's Manor was the name of the the press that that Dynatox you know uh, was over, and um, and Mother came out in 2015. And it did, and I got Paul Tremblay to blurb it. I got Adam Neville to blurb it. I got Laird Barron to blurb it. Um, Paul and Laird are on the front cover of that chat book. And, um, and, and it kind of went from there. And I just, and then I wrote another story called Alter. Um, I sent that story to Jordan. He also published that story. That was February, February 2016, I think. And that one really took off. And a lot of people read it and it got a lot of press and it got, got, you know, got a lot of reviews and, um, and my career snowballed from there. You know, uh, by the end of that year, I had to deal with Journal Stone to publish my debut collection. They also published a couple of novellas and, uh, and I've just been writing ever since. And that was it. And, um, and so it's been a great five years so far and, and I've got an agent and I've, you know, got a, you know, book out and i've got about 20 stories you know out there um on the market and um and i'm kind of focusing now more on novels um and hoping to break break through on that side of things um but yeah i'm really i feel really fortunate um so far and um and it's been a lot of fun and i've enjoyed the community and i've enjoyed learning about the genre and um and i and i really love the writing i really love the process of writing uh, this kind of scary, creepy, um, terrible stuff. Um, so I hope I keep to hope I get uh, get to keep doing it for a long time. You know. I hope so too. Yeah, most definitely. Speaking of process, uh, how did you find the process of approaching Mother differed from screenwriting? Um, it was definitely very different, and I like I said I had written. I've always been a writer. So, you know, I'd, I'd written a ton of short stories. I'd written, like I said, three novels up to, you know, before 2015, I'd written three, three novels. And so I was very familiar with process, but I wasn't very, I don't want to say I wasn't very good at it, but I never felt really, the confidence was never where I really needed it to be. And, and screenwriting is a more gaugeable sense of success because if you sell a screenplay, you're successful. And, so having sold a couple screenplays and having had a couple screenplays produced, um, I was feeling pretty confident about building a career in that front. Um, but when I decided to write Mother, um, I did have to approach it differently than to do a screenplay in some ways. But in some ways, I used a lot of the things that I learned about telling a story in, in when I when, in constructing the story of you know, mother. So screenwriting is incredibly technical. You know, it's, it's very, yes, it's creative, but not like, not like prose writing is creative. It's very technical in that, uh, there are, you know, certain beats you have to hit at certain times of the story. There's a certain structure that you have to follow. Uh, and a lot of prose writers hate screenwriting because they get into it and they realize exactly how technical and constraining it can be. Um, 
and and you know and and they scream and tear their clothes and pull their hair because it's not it's not they can't be as artistic as they want to be or whatever or they feel their arts being you know somehow contained or con- whatever but but that's what screenwriting is it's 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 a job um and um basically you're taking an idea and you're you're creating a platform for all these other people to build on top of it you know the director and the production designer and the effects crew and the actors you know it, it, it's it's not yours it's it's not your story to tell it's everybody's story to tell you're just kind of the guy you know creating the blueprint so it's it's much different but but taking that structure and applying it to stories uh really gave me a leg up because i could um I knew how to tell a story that had a beginning and middle and, a, and an end. I knew how to construct a story, you know, um, so that it had a satisfying pace and flow. And, and um, so that really helped me a lot. And with mother, I didn't get into necessarily uh, laying it out, you know, or anything like that, outlining it in the way I would have a screenplay, but I definitely had those things in my head when I was writing it. Um, and I think there, if there's a negative to that, is that when you are a screenwriter and you write prose, sometimes you have, um, sometimes you tend to think of the story the way you, the way you, you tend to visualize what you're writing the way you visualize a screenplay. And that can get you in a little bit of trouble sometimes. Um, you know, you, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily want to keep cutting back and forth as much as you do in a movie, you know, when you're writing prose for one example. But, um, if you take a story like uh, that I wrote called Mandala, which is in my first collection, um, that's basically uh, that's a, that's a you know that's a movie in story form. Um, you know, it, it reads like a movie. It's it's written to read like a movie, and um, and it's a, you know a really popular story because it I think people get really excited uh, while reading it. So um, different approaches, but but you know there's a lot of there's a lot of crossover between lessons I've learned in one place and the lessons I've learned um, in the other. Adversely, when you're writing a screenplay and you're a writer, you have to be very careful about overwriting a screenplay. Um, they don't want the description. They don't want to, you know, they don't want the flowery language. They want action and dialogue. So that's something that a lot of um, prose writers learn the hard way as well. But, but yeah, it helps to have both. Um, have done a lot of both. has definitely helped me a lot. Now, forgive me, because I know so little about screenwriting, but um, did you find that switching to prose or, you know, adding in prose, did you have to either scale back on describing character actions or even ramp it up? When writing a screenplay, you mean? Uh, no, I'm thinking in writing prose. Oh, OK. So I'm sorry. Re- repeat your question. I don't, I'm not understanding it 100 percent. So I guess my question is, if you are writing, a, a, if you're writing a story, a short story in prose versus a screenplay, uh, how much description do you do of what characters are doing in the story? Oh, well, um, it's different. I don't I, I, I do. I do have a tendency to over direct the characters when I'm writing prose uh i think it's because i can visualize it so strongly and i'm literally writing down what each character is doing and um and if i had one bit of feedback that early on was i don't need to know every single 
you know, I don't, I don't need to know every single little thing. When you're writing prose, um, it helps to leave stuff to the imagination of the reader. And, um, and so I would tend to over direct my characters and I've tried to get out of that. Um, and I, you know, I've, and I've, I've written three horror novels since, you know, over the last couple of years, which is, like I said, kind of my focus now. And, and that was, I had to really, I still found myself editing out, um, over direction of, you know, what characters are doing and just, and just sort of letting them progress. Um, so it, it, it it's a, it, 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 like I said, it can be, it can be tricky, um, between the, between the two. Um, and it, I think that has less to do with my screenwriting and more to do with me wanting to just put down exactly what I'm seeing in my head. And, um, and it's not really something you want to get in the practice of, uh, you want to be able to stylize it a bit more, um, so that readers can kind of fill in the blanks, those blanks themselves. So that's one of the lessons I've been trying to get through my thick head. Okay, uh, that makes sense. Beyond those uh, points, uh, pointers, or lessons, uh, wherever the right word is, is there any other advice that you may have for uh, a young or new um, screenwriter? Any pitfalls to possibly avoid? For a screenwriter, particularly? Yes. Yep. Um, don't write for free would be my number one piece of advice. Um Something that a lot of screenwriters can get, like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a group effort. And I think what can happen a lot of times to screenwriters who are maybe not represented um, or maybe you know looking for that first big break is um, they tend to do a lot of work for free uh, where they'll have a director who will be interested in a script or they'll have a producer who will be interested in a script. And they'll say, we love it. We love it. Um, let's hop on a call and let's take, let's, you know, let's go through and we're going to give you notes. And so you're like, okay, great. This is great. And so you do that. And then they give you all these notes and you're like, okay. And you spend a lot of time rewriting this, you know, the script. And then that happens again and it happens again. And then next thing you know, you've been working on this screenplay for six months. You haven't been paid a dime. And then the financing falls through and, you know, uh, you're left feeling kind of like an idiot and everyone else moves on to their other projects. And you're now you're stuck with a screenplay that you have 75 drafts of um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and nothing to show for it. So that would probably be my, my biggest um, piece of advice is don't write for free. Um, if you sell your screenplay or if you option your screenplay to somebody um, and they want to, they want you to, to modify it or spend some time changing it. Um, I think there's a degree to which you can do that, but just don't let it get out of hand and don't let them don't, don't let yourself get, um, get used too much. But otherwise, um, no, I, you know, it's, it's a hard field to get, it's a hard field to break into. Um, you know, I was lucky in that I knew people who were producers and I could send them the scripts and, um, and I know directors and stuff like that. Cause I live in LA and I'm kind of in that industry, but, um, it's, it's a, it's a thankless, uh, difficult endeavor, much like fiction writing. The difference with fiction writing is if you write a story and you believe in it and you go through all the machinations of having somebody design a cover, a professional cover, and you have a, somebody do a professional line edit of your story. And in other words, if you create, you can create a professional product 
and then in today's world you can you can distribute that product you can put it out onto amazon or you can put it out into the market or you can you know take it around to independent bookstores and have them carry it which is what i did with my first novel and um and you can you can get the work out there with a movie uh unless somebody makes it you know it's 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 never going to be seen your idea is never going to be um be seen and and that's that's kind of demoralizing so that's one of the positives to writing prose versus screenwriting is it's your thing you can do what you want with it you control it um and i and if you want to get it out into the world you can you know and that's an exciting i think option good points um it's actually eye-opening how many uh drafts uh i mean different screenplays certain movies have um not in this specific case it's not going from a book to a a film but i'm a big fan of a film that i'm not sure i think it's got mixed reviews uh freddie vs jason i was a kid when it came out i personally love it i think it's it's it is what it is um i was really hoping that they added ash or michael myers or hellraiser to it but i don't think that's well, happening give but it I, time <laughs> maybe they'll remake it but I, I bring it up because um, I love watching behind the scenes. They're free lessons. That's what my uh, my my godfather. He's an actor in the Boston area. Not well known. Uh, he's done some that you might have heard, but he's an extra. The biggest one that I'm aware of is uh, uh, Boston um, Celtic Pride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you heard of that one, Phil? No. But and that was uh, Daniel Stern and, and was it Daniel Dan Aykroyd? Aykroyd? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Ba- basically, they're both um, huge Boston Celtic fans. It's I think right past the Larry Bird era, and uh, the Celtics are playing against. I think it's a made-up team. Maybe I'm wrong, but long story short, they end up kidnapping the other team's best player during the playoffs while their teams are playing each other. Huh. Um, it- it's a funny movie. Right. But back to Freddy vs. Jason. Um, that had like twenty something different ma- uh screenplays and i know one of them was by um mike judge the guy that created yeah. uh king of the hill yeah uh i worked with it, mike judge all right uh yeah. wow who cares what i'm gonna say next yeah. let's talk about that <laughs> no it's your story uh, <laughs> um, all i was gonna say was the last interesting thing that i found as a fan was that a lot of the screenplays, uh, it's a documentary that comes with the uh, DVD or whatever there is now, 4K, Blu-ray, whatever. Right. And it said a lot of um, of the stories were rejected because they, they were based in uh, like a cult for Freddy Krueger uh, called Fredheads. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and that's really it, man. So let's talk about you and Mike Judge because I didn't know that. that yeah, well, I worked with Mike on a show called Silicon Valley. Uh, okay. Show. Yeah. Um, and I worked on Silicon Valley for I did three and a half seasons um, as a location guy. So um, yeah, so I Mike was the you know obviously the showrunner and one of the directors uh, that we were that we had on the show and uh, uh, as as was um, Alec Berg who went on to do um, Barry the very funny show Barry for HBO. Um, yeah, but that was you know so it was it was uh, he's an interesting cat. Uh, does not take elevators, so there you go. There's your Mike Judge factoid of the day. Uh, has to, you know, so we always had to make sure that he had a way to get up to the set if we were not on the ground floor. Um, 
Um, but yeah, he was, uh, he was an interesting cat. Um, and he came out pretty strongly against, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a, the, I think it was season five. Um, one of the actors, uh, I can't remember his name, TJ, the big guy. Um, Oh, uh, Miller is it? TJ Miller. Yeah. But he would stop. He, we had to keep like shutting down production because he would not show up for work. And, uh, and they ended up, they ended up parting ways with him the next season. And, but Mike judge, it was kind of funny because <clears throat> TJ Miller and, and some of the HBO guys were like, well, it was mutual this and mutual that. And we wish TJ the best. But then Mike judge was actually interviewed and he was like, he was a pain in the ass and he would <laughs> show up for work and it would cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you've got hundreds of people sitting there waiting for you to, you know, who they're all on time. They're all doing their jobs. And, you know, you're not doing yours. And it was just, really, it was just kind of very un Hollywood of Mike to kind of be like, no, let me tell you what happened. Um, but anyway, yeah, he's a, you know, whatever, interesting cat. Uh, and that was a pretty funny show. Um, and it was fun to work on, you know, for the few years that I did. Um, but yeah, to your point, um, you'd be, people are shocked. I think people would be shocked at how many variations of screenplays um are gone through before an actual movie is made or even while a movie is being made i think people would also be shocked at the state <laughs> the state of screenplays during filming there are giant 100 million dollar movies that begin production with unfinished screenplays or screenplays that are still in flux you know where the ending hasn't been written or figured out yet oh um <laughs> and it's terrifying and it's and you know um and, it, you know, same with some TV shows. But I uh, yeah, no, because usually because there's 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 the, there's there's always a lot of writers hired to do their kind of pitch. Right. Here's why. Here's how I see the new Star Trek movie. Here's how I would you know. Here's my pitch of the new Star Trek movie. And then maybe they hire. OK, they like it with this one guy did. So they'll hire that guy. And then that guy will do a couple drafts or a couple whatever. And then they'll be like, OK, well. We don't. We think we you've taken us as far as you can take us. So we're gonna bring in this other big writer. We're gonna pay him a couple hundred grand to do a rewrite. And then they'll bring another big writer in, and then big writer will do his thing. And they'll bring another writer in. Then they'll bring another writer in. And so you're getting all these different drafts or all these different rewrites. And then a bunch of studio executives sit around and say, these are the things we like. These are the things we don't like. These are the things that test well. These are the things that don't test well. And you know. And sadly, that's the way most Hollywood <laughs> movies are made, um, which is why in the independent movies uh, that are directed by one person and written by one person are usually a lot more interesting than what you see um, on the big screens or whatever, because they're they're actual visions of they're somebody's vision, um, one person's unique vision uh, versus, you know, um, what a studio thinks will will make money or not make money, which is also why you see a lot of this. Um, a lot of this stuff that comes out like with Zack Snyder, the Snyder cut uh, for justice league uh, with um, the kid who did uh, uh, the kid who did the fantastic four, Josh Trank. Yeah. Josh Trank came out after four came out and was like, that's not my movie because that's not the way those big movies are made. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, you'd be surprised. I mean, even my little, the movie that I wrote, it's called girl missing. It was on lifetime television. Um, I knew the director. I knew the producer. Um, I was there on set every day doing rewrites. And before we even shot that, before we began filming that movie, we shot in Minnesota. Um, I had done something like 23 rewrites. And 
And the whole time we were in Minnesota, I was I was writing. I'd get, the night before, I'd be, the director would be in a hotel room writing scenes for the next day. So it's a constant evolving process. Um, and even that <laughs> doesn't stop even when filming stops. It doesn't stop until the movie is released because there's rewrites, there's reshoots, there's um, a lot of stuff that happens after the movie is made. So, yeah, it's a like I said, it's a group project. And um, and screenwriter is really just one cog in the machine. Wow, you just um, pretty much said everything for me. I'm being selfish here for one second. Uh, I always hear, I love listening to uh, creators of all kinds talk. Um, I like how, hearing how they think, why they think the way that they think. Um, through horror, specifically recently, I've been listening to a lot of horror podcasts, and um, I just hear a lot of the times when the question's brought up, well, what if your, what if your story turns into a film or Netflix, which is a very... I think more realistic, realistic uh, um, idea now. I don't know how it was before Netflix, but it's. I mean, I don't see why it's not possible. Like Paul Tremblay, I know had a head full of ghosts sold to uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s production company. Mm-hmm. So I think about that, and because I'm a writer, I'm never gonna stop writing. I know one of the keys to being successful is perseverance. So mm-hmm. I, I can't help but think, what if? Uh, so. I'm just thinking before you said that I don't really want to write the screenplay. I love writing novels, short stories. I like prose. That's my, that's my thing, man. I love movies to watch. That's just my personal preference. Right. You, you saying you talking about all the technicalities and stuff. I'm thinking that's time taken away from a, a book that I could write. That's time from, uh, like six short stories that I could write. It, it just it sounds a lot more in depth than I ever would have imagined. Right. Let me tell you. Let me just tell you so you know. If you're if you're debating between spending your time writing a story and writing a screenplay, write the story because you have a better shot of selling a story to be adapted into a movie than you do writing a screenplay that'll be made in a movie. And when I say better shot, I don't mean sort of better. I mean like a thousand percent better <laughs> because studios do not want to buy a screenplay that is based on nothing. They want to buy a screenplay that was a graphic novel. They want to buy a screenplay that was a sh- published in an anthology. That was a short story. They want, um, they want it to be an adapted, um, adapted material. And, um, and it's much easier much, much easier to sell or to option a short story um, or a novel uh, for film than it is to write an original screenplay and have it considered for film. And um, you get paid probably just as well as you would if you wrote the screenplay. And, um, uh, you know, and I'll tell you, I'll back up my words. I've written, I don't know, 20 screenplays. I've spent the last two novels I wrote a novel called Gothic and a novel called um, boys in the Valley, which I'm, which I'm putting the final touches on now are both screenplays that I'm, I'm adapting to prose because the screenplays I know will never get, will never get made as they are. But if I can sell them as a novel, um, then they have a better, then I have a better chance of getting them made into, into films um, and I've already got the screenplays written, so there's the bonus. Um, 
but I've, yeah, I've, um, I can't announce this officially, but I can tell you that I've been working with, um, a company, a, 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 um, an agency, um, who has been uh, trying to sell my, uh, short stories to studios and to, and to producers. And I've already sold stuff that, and, and have made more money and have had more and have a much better possibility of that story getting made into a movie than any screenplay I ever wrote. So, uh, I definitely think you're, you're thinking about it the right way. The only good thing about, the only good thing about knowing how to write a screenplay, and I've had this conversation with guys like Josh and Paul and Laird is, is if you, if you do sell a story and you actually have a little power, um, you you have a, maybe you have a bit more of a bigger name than, than, than I do. You can make the case that you want to write the screenplay for your own story, your own novel. Um, and, and that's why it might be helpful to know how to do that. But as far as, um, like Jillian Flynn's the great example, right? She, she wrote the screenplay for gone girl. Mm. It was a huge hit. Um, uh, but that's why it, that, you know, it's a good skill to know, it for that reason um but but otherwise no i would just really really what studios want is they want to buy your idea so the story a short story that i sold that i optioned i should say recently is i think five thousand words right um and the what i made optioning that story compared to like how what i've made what i've made selling every you know, short stories for all these different publications is, is night and day. So you're better off creating these original ideas, um, getting them out into the world, getting an anthology to pick them up, uh, um, or putting out your own set of stories or whatever the case might be. And, um, and hope that, hope that the right, the right person reads them. I mean, I mean, I was lucky in that my first collection, when my, when my debut collection came out, you know, it was written up in the New York Times um, as part of their summer horror, uh, summer horror um, piece that they did. And it was me and Brandon McLeod and Josh Mallerman were all part of this kind of big um, kind of article. Uh, and and that got a lot of people calling, calling me and calling my agent at the time. Um, so stuff like that can really you know can really help. Not that everyone's going to be able to get in the New York Times. I was very lucky to be able to do it. But <laughs> But any promotion you can get to promote your work and to get it out there and get it read is, is probably the better avenue than, than trying to write screenplays. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious. Uh, you've been writing and publishing, getting your, your prose out there for five years, um, and, and it certainly sounds like you've been very prolific. Now, if that continues ascending and ascending, like it definitely should, um, would you – always want to keep one foot in the film business or you mean as far as my day job is concerned yeah i mean if you didn't need to if you didn't need to do it would would you still want to i guess no no i would not be doing <laughs> you no. made it sound like a right pain in the ass so i was trying no, to it's a, no it's a, no it's <laughs> it's it's uh i wouldn't wish my job on my worst enemy it's um no it's not a it's not a uh it's not something that I take, I find pleasure in. Um, it pays my bills. 
Um, it, 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 you know, I'm part of a union, so I have, I have a nice insurance package. I have a nice pension package. Uh, so it, all those practical things are, are nice. Um, uh, but no, if I can, if I can uh, scratch out a living, um, writing full time, uh, I, I, I will, uh, you know, I, I say that, but I would, I, there's part of me that probably, and I've actually had this conversation with my wife. There's part of me that probably thinks like, well, because in, 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 um, in the film business, when you're in a union, you have to work at X amount, like, like most unions, I guess if, when you're freelance, you have to work, work X amount of days to stay current with that union. Right. So I, and it's not very many. So I could see a world where I was sort of working the minimum amount of days, uh, every year so that I could keep my insurance and my pension. But, um, but no, the, the dream is to, is to not have to, uh, do that, um, so that I can write full time. And, um, and that's kind of what I've been, that's what I've been, you know, working really hard to try and get to that, to that point. I don't know if I will, I don't know if I ever will, but, um, but I'm trying, you know, is that a teamster union? Yeah, I'm a teamster technically. Is that local 25 or is that maybe that's just in Cambridge? Uh, I think it's no, the the LA local, my local is 399. Okay, yeah, all right. So yeah, be a lot different than in Boston. Uh, I bring that up because yeah. my my uh, paternal grandfather was a a local teamster uh, in Massachusetts. He's a truck driver. Uh, yeah. After after he came back from the war, I was in the same or not the same. Union, but I was also a local teamster for two years, uh, mm-hmm. del- delivering booze as a kid. Yeah. And fun, sorry, fun fact, though, I figured you you two would appreciate this, is uh, what they gave away during the holidays was a free case of any beer that we delivered for free. I could not have it e- either year because I was 18 to 20 years old when I worked there. So yeah. I got, I got, it was like, I want free beer, but nothing. What did they give you instead? Anything? I got nothing. What? <laughs> I got a job. Yeah. And then I got laid off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, to, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. But team, location guys, which is what I do, we, um, yeah, we're Teamsters. So we're, we're in this, we're in the same, um, all the drivers, all the transpo department, you know, the transportation department, um, we're lumped in with those guys, um, primarily because we, do, we we don't there's not enough of us to kind of uh you know uh, need a, our own union so they kind of lumped us in with the with the drivers so um which is great because they're the most powerful union uh of all of them so um so it's not a bad one to be lumped in with tell that to jimmy hoffa yeah <laughs> exactly so Phil, no one messes no one messes with the teamsters <laughs> I'm curious, what what are the uh, duties of a location manager? Um, look, so location, okay, so I'm I'm what's called a key assistant location manager, which basically means there's a loca- there's a, lo- a location manager. Sometimes there's a supervising location manager, and I work for those guys. Um, and then there's location assistants who work for me. So, but basically, we scout locations, we secure locations. Um, we are in charge of all the logistics for the location. So we have to get, um, and we have to permit the locations and everything that we do there. So we're dealing with the city. We're dealing with cops. We're dealing with fire department. We are dealing with closing down streets. We are dealing with neighbors. We're making the deal with the, the building or the owner of the house or whatever it is. 
we have to figure out a place to park, you know, 250 crew members. Uh, we had to park our trucks and our base camp and the wagons and the trailers and, um, and all that stuff. So all the logistics that go into um, filming at a location is the responsibility of one guy. And that's, and you know, that's me if it's my location. So, um, so I'm had to make sure everybody, you know, has a place to park, has a place to go to the bathroom. I have to make sure that the caterer has a place to serve lunch. I have to make sure that the street closures are in place, that the cops are in the right place, um, that the permit is done with the city properly. Um, so it's, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's a lot of work. Um, and it's a lot of stress, uh, especially when you have, you know, when you show up at a location and you've planned for everything to be shooting this way. And the director shows up and goes, Hey, you know what? I want to shoot that way. Um, and it creates a whole litany of problems and you're running around trying to like figure out. Um, so, uh, it, yeah, it's tricky, uh, but that's basically what the job description is. It's if we're on a stage, like a sound stage or something, uh, for us, we're, you know, those days we're usually out scouting, um, photographing p- potential places to film, um, and, or, or prepping for, for the locations, uh, that the crew will be shooting in later in the schedule. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of work. Uh, but yeah, it covers everything from, from scouting to finding all the locations where they shoot, uh, to the logistics of the shoot day itself, and then making sure everything is put back, um, the way it's supposed to be when everybody leaves. I'm glad you were candid with us earlier. I don't feel bad now saying that sounds like a fucking nightmare. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you're, uh, the only time you're noticed is when something goes wrong. You know, <laughs> when everything goes right, people just assume that they just showed up and everything just happened to be, you know, open and ready and everything's in its place and and stuff like that. And they don't really think about it. But if something goes wrong, you know, all the blame falls falls on you. So it's kind of a thankless job. But like I said, it's a job and um, and uh, and it pays well. And there's, you know, insurance and all that good stuff. I have not worked since um december of last year though so it's been a long this is the longest stretch stretch i've had uh uh since since i started uh this job so um it's getting a little tight uh you know production is supposed to start again in july that's what they're saying um with all the precautions and all that stuff um for the pandemic uh but yeah you know production has pretty much been shut down since february so um so everybody's a little everybody's a little anxious here in Los Angeles to get back to work, but also worried about getting back to work. And, and cause when you're filming, um, you know, you're in very close proximity to a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and a lot of times it's unavoidable if you're shooting in a, in a, in a, you know, in a room or in an office building or, or a warehouse or whatever, everybody's kind of crammed in there together or a stage. Um, so, uh, it's going to be tricky. I'm not sure exactly how they're going to pull it all off. Uh, but it's going to be a very different world I return to than the one that I left. So I'm very curious to see how it how it goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently planning. Uh, I'm I'm a teacher for my day job, so we're currently planning for what school is going to look like in the fall. And the plan on paper, you know, versus when we actually get back to work, I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine the two kind of coinciding. And I would I would think it's kind of the same for you. Yeah, schools are going to be rough. I I don't know 
how that's going to work. I really, I don't, I really don't. I mean, I, you know, my kid is 19. Uh, so he's in, you know, he's in college and, um, and it's been really hard for him because, uh, you know, he misses being around kids. He misses being, you know, at school and, um, and, uh, and everything's, and they just announced for his school, uh, the fall, uh, semester is going to be remote. So he'll be, which he was very upset about. So he's going to still be stuck at home and doing everything online. And, um, but yeah, for, for all those kids, man, uh, I'll, I, I mean, I don't know. I hope it works out. I hope for the best. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. A 19 year old, uh, starting their sophomore year is, I mean, technically equipped to handle learning in that way, but it's missing out on that, that college experience. It's, it's not fair. I mean, is, is what it boils down to. Yeah. It's not fair. And I feel bad for him. You know, I I don't care. I'm an introvert. Like I, if, if I was, if, you know, like it's funny because I watch those, you know, I watch movies and you'll see somebody in their prison cell, you know, serving 30 years, and I just be like, oh man, that looks awesome. <laughs> Look at that cell. They're all, they have all this. They got their own little bed there. How many right. books can I write during those, right. those 30 years? <laughs> they don't, they don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to see anybody. Um, so <laughs> I'm totally content just like uh, staying in my office and working and and stuff. But uh, for him, yeah, it's been rough. He, he's, he's, you know, the kids. I think for the kids, it's been harder. I mean, obviously, parents have had it hard because the kids are home. Um, but I feel bad for the kids that are you know, missing out on on uh, their normal growing up experiences. So hopefully it'll be hopefully you know, we only have a few more months of this and things will start you know, slowing down. Fingers crossed. I wonder Fingers what this crossed. is going to do for uh, that generation. Uh, obviously, things are going to be weird for us. But like my my um, father's parents were born in the late 20s and early 30s so they just missed the great depression but i'm sure that their parents kind of uh, instilled some hoarding because when my when my nana died um <laughs> we went through her stuff at her house and my dad's like Who, whose photograph book is that hey is that my mom when she's never shown us this and mm-hmm. we got this um beautiful drawing of her and her and um it's okay her and her uh my papa when they got married and never hung it because she's this uh sweet little catholic woman that doesn't like anything too big of herself and and just there was a bunch of stuff so i'm i'm curious i'm thinking like kids that are old enough to really like your son he's 19 My, my kid's only seven months old almost brennan's is he's got younger kids so maybe it won't affect them the same but like what's this going to do to them psychologically? Cause they're going to remember like, Oh shit. I remember when <laughs> everything had to be, you know, mask on gloves on potentially. Yeah. It could come you know, back too. I don't think, I think, the, you know, the thing with kids is they're so resilient. They, you know, and they, um, you know, I'm always impressed with a kid's ability to work around stuff that really throws adults for a loop. Um, I, I think they'll be fine. I, I think I think if it goes on for you know were to go on for a few more years, um, I think then you 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 know that's a, that's something that would impact you for for the rest of your life. But I think for now I'm hoping that it's something that he kind of you know looks back on as an interesting experience, but but doesn't necessarily you know scar scar him for life or anything. But um, 
for like, and I think for little kids, you know, you know, I watch that John Krasinski, uh, you know, good news show. And I see the little kids that he has on there all the time doing crazy stuff. And I think, you know, you kind of hope like for a lot of kids that it'll be something to look back on almost fondly, you know, where there was this crazy time where we were at home with our parents all the time and we didn't have to go to school and we were just doing like arts and crafts and shit all day. And, um, you know, who knows, but yeah, I, but I would like to, I'd like to think that, um, that it's something that will stick with them in a positive way. Um, like if nothing else, man, the generation growing up now is going to know how to wash their fucking hands. Like (laughs) something that, something that we did not really worry too much about, you know, and, um, uh, you know, those guys are going to know all about uh, hand washing uh, and, and the use of, uh, you know, hand sanitizers and stuff like that. So this is their um, this is going to be their walking to school uh, 15 miles in the snow <laughs> uphill both ways moment, yeah. too. I mean, I, God I was in school, there was a pandemic. <laughs> God help my grandkids if they ever say they're bored. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, it's life for me has been weird, man, because like I I am an essential employee. I work at a, a wastewater treatment plant where basically uh, we have in my county um, all the shit and piss water come in. So sure. if my if my company closes down, the sewers will back up and have shit and piss water all over. So work's been it's it's open 24 seven. It's been weird. Like two months ago, pretty much no cars were out. Whenever I went to work, no stores were open. And now it's slowly, I'm just seeing traffic kind of get back to normal. My yeah. wife's been uh, home with the kid every day. It's just, it's it's a very weird time. Yeah. And yeah. it's affecting writers, per, specifically writers. Some, they're paralyzed from it, can't do anything really. Others, I'm not, I'm not bragging or nothing, but like I've been writing nonstop. So yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's really it's weird all around. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I I wrote um, I finished writing a novel in February. I think I'm doing the math. I think the math is right on that. Um, and I turned into my agent and this is right before the pandemic really took off. So whenever this was early, late January, maybe. And um, I turned in this novel called Gothic and um and I was like, and this is like probably February. And I was like, well, I'm probably going to have to go back to work pretty soon. So I'm going to get this novel done and then I'm going to write a few short stories that I owe. And then I'll probably have to, you know, once I go, cause when I'm working, I don't really write much. I, I work very long hours when I'm working and, and very odd hours. I'll be getting up at two or three in the morning and, you know, working a 16 hour day. So locations is a very, very long day, but, um, uh, but then the pandemic hit, right? And I was like, and I had this other novel that I wanted to write. And I already, I even told my agent, I said, I'm probably not going to be able to get it to you till the end of the year because I got to start, I got to make some money. Um, and then I'll probably try and maybe I'll get back to it at the end of summer or something. But then the pandemic hit. So I was like, oh my God, wait a minute. Now I've got all this time. I can't work. So I don't have to, have, I don't have to feel the like guilt of not working um, like what I usually do when I take time off work to write. And, um, and I was like, well, shit, I'm gonna see if I can knock out this novel. And so I wrote, I wrote another, so I wrote my a third, I wrote the new novel. I wrote it, um, you know, uh, 80,000 words. And I wrote it in uh, April and May. 
And now I'm, I'm now I'm doing the edits of it right now, and it'll be I'm turning it in. I'm supposed to turn it in at the end of the week um, to my agent. So yeah, so for me, if you want to look at silver linings, which is I know, which you know I understand hundred I understand how horrible it is. I'm not suggesting I don't, but if there's a silver lining for me personally, it's that I had like all this extra time to write, and I really took advantage of it, and I cranked out this this novel, um, and uh, and now, you know, now I really need to get back to work. <laughs> so I'm, hoping that, <laughs> I'm hoping that I don't have more time because I'll be I'll be out of money. But um, but yeah, I really kind of loved having like all that time to uh, be stuck at home and be quarantined. And I used it to um, to knock out this novel. Um, so I was really happy about it because now I have um, three novels that my agent is trying to sell. And I feel like I can kind of relax a little bit. Um, and I don't feel the urgency to have to you know, write another novel right away because I feel like she's got enough product at this point um, to try and move. So um, yeah, the quarantine's worked out really well for me, but I've seen the same, I've seen the same post. I've seen, you know, people saying like, you know, can't write, wrote four words today, too depressed and stuff. And I'm like, man, this is like, this is like the time. Like you can just, you know, you, I mean, you're still working. Like you said, you're an essential employee, but I was not. So for me, it was like, that's how I always am when I'm not working in film industry, I'm really working hard on the writing because I know I only have a limited window to do it. Um, so I'm at my desk, you know, 10 hours a day. Um, so that's kind of how it was these last couple of months. So, um, yeah, I, for me, it's been, luckily I have the kind of mindset where I wasn't, I was depressed and I was angry about all this stuff, but I was, and, but I loved being quarantined. Like I said, from, I love that kind of, I don't mind just being stuck at home. Um, I was happy just to kind of, I know, uh, escape into my, you know, my world of fiction and, and just, and write in it, write a new novel. So it was great for me. 80,000 words in two months. That's excellent. My rule of thumb that I mean, it's just a super loose rule, but I feel good if I'm aiming to write a full length novel, I feel good with like three months for 90,000 plus words. Uh, mm-hmm. Three months for 90,000 words, 30,000 words a month. I feel like that's like, I pat myself on the back if I change yeah. It. A thousand words a day is a very, a very good goal. That's that's kind of what I use as my goal when I'm when I when I'm working on a project. I'd like to try and get at least a thousand words a day down. Um, different writers, uh, it's different. You know, Paul Tremblay is famous for saying he writes 500 words a day. Yeah. Um, and he writes, but he, but what he doesn't always, well, he doesn't always say, but but we don't always hear it is that he writes 500 words a day, but then he rewrites those 500 words and rewrites those 500 words until it's perfect. And then he moves on to the next. So he's more of a, he's more of a, he rewrites while he's writing kind of guy. Um, I'm don't do that. I basically just burn through the first draft. I'm looking at my, okay. So boys in the Valley, I wrote, cause I put the dates on my manuscript. So I wrote the first draft I wrote, started writing in April 19th and I finished, finished it on May 25th. So about five weeks. That's awesome. And, yeah. And I'm, but but I'm writing the new, I'm writing, I'm doing the rewrites right now. I took a week off because I didn't want to look at it for a week. Um, and it's taken me, you know, I've been right doing the rewrites already for a couple weeks. So, so, you know, the rewrites are as important a lot of ways as the actual writing is. And, um, I really want to make sure, and I'll be doing another, and I'll probably do, so I'll do, I always do like one rewrite, which is when I'm just kind of going through the, the story again on the, in, you know, in word or whatever, 
at the computer. Um, and then I print that out and I read it in, um, in print form and I do my hand edits. Um, and then I go back and I put all those edits in. And then what I've recently started doing in the last couple of novels is I, I go to Amazon and I, and I print it in uh, as a book. So here I'll show you. Hold on. Um, the uh, your audio viewers won't be able, audio guys won't be able to see this, but so I create these like Amazon like arcs of the of the manuscripts. So these okay. are just manuscripts of of like bound manuscripts. But what's cool about it is it, it it's cheaper than printing it out. Like if you print out you know a 300 or 400 page manuscript at home you're spending a lot of money on paper and ink if you order it on amazon as an arc it costs like four bucks and you get like a bound copy of it that you can like and so i for me so then what i now what i do is i I bind it and i read it like i would read like a book and i make notes in the actual in the actual book so um i find that each time i read it in those different ways i find new stuff that i need to fix um uh, and it's, you know, it's like, if you read it out loud, you'll find stuff to fix that you won't notice if you read, if you're reading it in your, in your head. But, um, but that's a cool solution for, for writers. If you, if you want to read your book in book form, I recommend doing it on the Amazon, uh, platform and just throw your manuscript up there, throw a generic cover on it. And, and what you do is you just order it as an, you know, as an arc. So don't actually publish it. But then, um, but just set it up and then order. Actually, I think you can order ten at a time, and that's a really good way to kind of like. And it's kind of fun to have like a mock-up of the book. Um, but it was it's, it's been helpful. Like I was sending it to one publisher during the pandemic, and I was like, "Hey, um, I want to send you this new novel to look at." And he's a friend. I wasn't going, through, which is why I wasn't going to my agent. And he said, "Well." I said, but I actually have a bound copy. If you want me to send you a bound copy, I'll send you a bound copy. And he was like, yeah, that'd be great because it's so hard for me right now um, to read uh, on my computer because, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm not at the office and all this stuff. So I just sent it to his house. So it's a nice way to get um, – or if you want to send it somebody to Blurb or something like that, you can sure. just send them a copy. Yeah. So it's a cool little trick. I, I, I've been really happy that I did it. Um, I, I found it really helpful. That's a great tip. Um, one that I go to, my I don't know if you've heard of him. He's in uh, the UK, Mark Cassell. Um, he is a guy that I often go to for advice. And one suggestion he had um, was the second draft, print it up, take out your red pen. But reformat it and thinking in my head it's probably going to be cheaper your way if you got a long, if you got a big, thick book. But for short stories, this is great. Oh, yeah. Um, you format it so it's a uh, landscape, and then you put a uh, you put them in two columns. Um, make the font a little bit bigger because your eye can catch them, and put it uh, from Times New Roman, which is what he and I use most of the time, in uh, Garamond, I think mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that way, uh, and have a line between the two columns. That way, it looks like a printed book. Uh, mm-hmm. The font, if it's bigger, like. 16 18 you'll catch it um a lot easier garamond the point of that is because your eye can catch things a little bit different take the red pen out mark the sh- i i like good feedback mm-hmm. um which actually i'm thinking about i'd like to know 
your take on beta readers because I've heard some writers say never use them. Christopher Golden actually, because uh, I asked him, because um, what like he's someone that I I, I listen to him. I, I listen to people. I obviously listen to more than just him, but like he's yeah. someone that if he gives advice, listen. He's mm-hmm. done it successfully, but yeah. He said sometimes I use three, sometimes I use none. Uh, for me personally, um, I like beta readers. I've learned to realize which ones to go back to and which ones never to go back to. Right. And something that if a new list, writer is listening to this, and actually used to, I thought I wanted to be a screenwriter when I was younger, before I started writing prose. Um, so I did a bunch of YouTube uh, videos for fun. I edited them, got my friends in it. I've noticed a, th- uh, a similarity uh, with shooting a film and writing or any kind of art. When you tell your friends, your general populist friends, and say, hey, I got this project or I wrote this book, nine times out of ten, they'll be excited and say, I want in on that or to read that or to be a part of it. And then nine times out of ten, maybe one of those friends will actually follow through. And even if they follow through, they really they're just like oh, it's just a home video but like in my head for me kevin smith's been my biggest influence and i'm like that guy is one of us so why can't i do it but right. now i want to i want to write prose so i guess uh this is my long-winded way of asking like beta readers what's your take on them and then do you have any um anything to add on for newer writers that might be listening uh, as far as like who you maybe should avoid going to as far as like friends go, or maybe not get your hopes up. Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Oh, wait, Brendan, I think just opened a beer and I'm super jealous <laughs> right now. Uh, Cause I don't have a beer here. Uh, just all the way downstairs, but um, uh, it's a good question. And um, my personal take on beta readers is that I do like beta readers. I have, I have used beta readers throughout my short career. Um, The key to beta readers is to know what to accept and what to reject. And what I mean by that is, let me back up a step by saying this. When my collection came out, there's eight, nine stories in my collection. And the thing that, the thing that caught me completely off guard and that has taught me more than anything else I've learned in fiction writing is was how wildly different the reception was to each and every story by all these different readers. I would literally get reviews where one guy would say, just finished this book. Mandala was the greatest story I've ever read, but I hated Surfer Girl. And literally the next reviewer would say, I just finished this book. Surfer Girl is a classic, but I really did not care for Mandala. <laughs> and I could go on and on. But I was shocked. I was. I mean, it wasn't just like, yeah, I like this story more than this story. It was literally like people were passionately saying how much they hated st- one story and loved another story. And then literally I would see the exact opposite three reviewers later. And 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 this and everybody like everybody has a different favorite story in that book. And what and that really shocked me in a way because it makes you realize that you can't write for you can't write for all readers you can only write for yourself because nobody's going to like everything you write and some people are going to like stuff 
that other people don't like and other people are going to dislike stuff that other people like. So you can't write to please everybody because you're not going to please everybody. It's not going to happen. Uh, you're creating art. You're not creating, you know, math. So there's more than one solution. So if you know that going in uh, and, to, and to finish that point as it pertains to beta readers, if you understand that going into beta readers, then you then you're then you have established the fact that, you know, not all beta readers are going to like or dislike the same things in your manuscript. One beta reader may say, I really loved this character, but I really hated um, the way you did this scene. And the next beta reader may say the exact opposite. So the key to beta readers is to not take everything they say as gospel, to um, to filter through the things that they're saying that you agree with and the things you don't agree with, you, you're welcome to dismiss. You uh, should dismiss. Um, and and because what this beta reader likes may not be what somebody else likes. But if this beta reader says something like, I thought that this character was kind of underdeveloped and then maybe two or three other beta readers say the same thing. Okay, well, hold on now. Maybe this is something I should take a longer look at. So that's the good thing about beta readers, because if they all say this, if they all say something is a problem, then the chances are good that it's a problem. If, um, and if, and, and, you know, and, and, and if they, if one person says something, another person says something different, then it's up to you as the writer to say, should I take another look at that? And is there a way for me to fix that where it doesn't necessarily change it so that I'm swaying the pendulum too far the other way? So, um, and then the last thing I'll say about beta readers is also it kind of depends on who the beta reader is. So, for example, if Laird Barron is my beta reader, I'm pretty much, you know, it's pretty much gospel um, because Laird knows what he's doing. Um, he's been doing it for a long time and he's an amazingly talented writer. So I listen to him, uh, you know, when he tells me something isn't working, he gets way more weight than like my mom or <laughs> whatever. So, um, so that's the thing with beta readers. So you have to kind of weigh, you know, uh, how much you think, you know, how much you think each one, um, how, you know, how much of what they're saying is something that you should take as gospel. And then also you just have to know that like, um, if someone says they don't like something or if someone says you should do something, it doesn't mean you should do it. It doesn't mean, mean you should change it. It just means this one particular person had this one opinion. So, you, you know, you just have to be able to filter through all that static and all that kind of it's kind of like data gathering. Right. You're just you're data gathering and you're kind of looking for the spikes, you know, in the data <laughs> and, the, and the spikes are what you want to pay attention to. So that's my only that would be my advice regarding beta readers is don't take it personally. Don't take everything that a beta reader says is gospel and um and look, you know, look for the spikes, but feel free to say, I like what this person said about this. I find that interesting. May I'll take another look at it. But I think what they're saying about that is wrong. I disagree. I'm going to leave it as it is. Okay, perfect. Um, let's change gears here for a minute. And I'm just going to quote something from um, your website. Uh, it says that you were, before all this, a loud music producer where you produce concert DVDs for the Psychedelic Furs, Public Enemy, 3,000 live internet broadcasts with uh, bands such as The Cure, Motley Crue, and Deep Peach Mode. Um, something that I just found absolutely fascinating was the next piece of information. You also produced the first live streaming concert ever broadcast over the internet. So I'll break it down one question at a time because I'm sure it's a lot to take in. 
Um, were you the one that came up with that idea? The to, to stream live over the internet? Yeah. No, no, no. That was done by people much smarter than me. No, <laughs> I was the uh, producer of the event. So at the time of all that stuff you're describing, I was working for um, House of Blues Entertainment, uh, which was a live concert promoter. And this is in the, um, you know, this is in the uh, the late 90s. So I started House of Blues in 95. I left House of Blues in 2001. And when I was there, House of Blues was the second largest concert promoter in the world, um, behind only behind a company called Clear Channel, which is I think is now called Live Concerts. Um, or I can't remember. That. Anyway, but they're yeah, then they changed their name, and they also own a bunch of radio stations and stuff like that. So um, so this was in 95. You know. The internet was pretty new. Uh, there was streaming wasn't really, uh, it wasn't, you know, didn't, hadn't been invented yet or hadn't, you know, and um, there were two companies who were doing it. There was uh, Microsoft uh, and their real uh, player. And then there was a company called Real Network. Oh, no, sorry, Real Network is the real player. Microsoft had the, I don't remember what they called their player, but they had like their own, their own kind of streaming box. And, um, and at first it was only audio. So, um, you know, if you had your dial up modem, you could log on and you could get uh, streaming audio of, you know, uh, somebody talking or whatever. And so the but so when I was at House of Blues, I produced a concert with the Blind Boys of Alabama and Real Networks, who Real Networks par- partnered with us because um, we were providing the content for their technology platform. And so that was the first live audio, rec- uh, live music, live concert ever broadcast over the internet and we were covered in wall street journal and billboard magazine and USA today and all this other stuff. Um, and I was flying around the country doing interviews and like I did a press conference in Las Vegas. So it was kind of a big deal. And, and actually then we did, um, a live video stream of the cure and Depeche mode. And that was a huge deal. And you know, this is when you would, but it was funny because at the time the record labels were freaking out because they didn't know what streaming was. They thought we were stealing their content. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, the artists didn't know what it was. You know, everybody was, you know, there was, it was so new. It was a wild west. And this is where Mark Cuban, who now owns the Dallas Mavericks and all that stuff, the billionaire Mark Cuban, he started in the same field. So he was, he owned a company called uh, AudioNet, which then became broadcast.com. And I knew Mark back then and uh, we worked with him quite a bit. So he was kind of a, you know, a work a peer of mine. I wouldn't say we were friends, but we were, we worked together a lot and he actually tried to hire me uh, to come work at broadcast.com. And I, and I ended up staying at house of blues much to my eternal dismay because Mark ended up selling that company to Yahoo for $4 billion um, and house of blues ended up never going public. So uh, that was the, that was one of the many wrong decisions I made in my life. But yes. So I, I, I was producing concerts for, um, House of Blues. I produced them for the internet. Um, worked very closely with Microsoft and um, and Real Networks. After Real Networks went away, I was you know ended up working very closely with Microsoft. Went up to Microsoft a bunch of times and met with all their you know their head guys and and stuff and uh, and then yeah and, and produced like I think you said like over three thousand concerts that were streamed over the internet. And then I started producing DVDs. We did a Public Enemy DVD. Did a uh, psychedelic furs DVD. Um, so we were, produ- we were producing those for a while. Um, we got into a little bit into TV space. Um, and then the bubble burst in the, you know, 2000, uh, the internet bubble burst and all these startup companies that were, 
you know, had these massive multipliers and were getting billions of dollars of funding, you know, all, all popped and, um, and went away and the market crashed and, and, uh, and that was the end of my career, uh, my music career. I left also blues in 2001. Um, and, and then took a couple years off and then opened up a, a bookstore in Venice beach and ran that for seven years and, um, owned that. And lost my shirt, and then started, uh, and then and now and then started the location gig. So that's what I do now. Okay, and thanks for that correction. I said uh, Brennan corrected me. It's not the peach. I don't know why the fuck I said the that. Mode? <laughs> I thought you were being sarcastic. I thought you were no. like Pesh mode. No, I'm just a fucking moron sometimes. Uh, I thought you were being like super witty. You stood his last dead. Nobody would have known that. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Pesh mode. They were actually pretty cool dudes. Um, they were really nice. Um. The Cure were super nice people, you know. Um, I did a thing with the Deftones; they were not as cool. Um, I did a I, the coolest thing I ever did, and I can say that with, you know, because it, it, because when, you, when I tell you what it is, you'll agree with me. There's no argument about it. It's the coolest thing I coolest thing I ever did was I produced a, and this was something I did. I I came up with the idea, and it was my, I you know I produced it for House of Blues and Microsoft. I'm sorry, and Real Networks at the time. Um, is I did a interview with, uh, I set up an interview with Black Sabbath, all the original members of Black Sabbath oh. were interviewed by the two creators of South Park. Matt Trey <laughs> and, uh, I mean, um, no, Trey. Yeah. Matt and Trey. Yeah. Matt I, and Trey. I can't remember. Yeah, Mark, name. Matt Park and Trey Stone. I want to say. Trey Stone is right. Uh, Matt's, I can't remember Matt's last name. It's not Park. It's something like that. But, um, uh, but that was pretty neat. So, you know, we were in the foundation room of the House of Blues in Los Angeles and Sunset Strip, and we had all the original members of Black Sabbath there with the two South Park creators there. And um, and they did like an hour long interview. They interviewed each other. And uh, I don't know if it's available anywhere or not, um, but I got a, you know, I got a picture of, of me with all those guys. and I look like I'm 12 years old. But um, but that was pretty interesting. That was an interesting night. And uh, and I got to hang out with Ozzy and uh, and his wife, um, you know, for a little while and i hung out with you know matt trey stone trey of the was matt parker of, and trey stone matt parker trey stone trey stone was um uh he was a little more kept to himself and he kind of came in did his thing and, and then sort of left but he was great whereas matt was more the matt's more the kind of like the manager of those two so he was he was more you know much more personable we hung out for a while and and um and he would call me for concert tickets and stuff for long, you know, for years after that. So, um, yeah, so that was a really interesting night. But that was kind of one of the more interesting things I did, um, along with those other things you mentioned. Yeah. So I'm super uh, jealous. I'll just flat out say because Ozzy's one of my favorite uh, artists ever. Um, I don't talk about this with many friends because I don't know a lot. I've tried, but not a lot. Talk about new Ozzy albums. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you heard "Ordinary Man." It came out this year. I personally loved it. Um, it's, he's got. He's a new album. I didn't even know that. It's called "Ordinary Man." He's got two Jeez. tracks with Post Malone. They're fucking great. Yeah, uh, he's got this one track with um, Elton John called. It's the uh, title of the album, "Ordinary Man." Uh, he's a living legend, man, and he's. Yes. I, isn't he considered the godfather of metal? I I don't I don't know I that. That's not my lane, but I would. Mine either. I just. But to me, I was. Me, I think he is right. I mean, he's the. I mean, he's the or the godfather of you know modern rock and roll. I don't know, but 
Yeah, he's he's a you know, and he was could not have been more pleasant. His wife Sharon could not have been more nice. So she had you know, uh, so they they were very nice people. All those guys were cool. Um, so uh, you know, it was a long time ago, but it, but it was something. It was a night I remember fondly. It was pretty. It was a pretty surreal experience. And it was funny because we were going to do the thing with um, Black Sabbath. That was already kind of set up because they were playing. They were playing one of the House of Blues venues, and so I set up the interview. And I think at the around that time, and I I could be misremembering, but I think around that time we were, I remember watching South like watching South Park, and I think in one of the episodes they had some sort of Ozzy reference, or Ozzy was in one of the episodes, or there was something Ozzy related, and I was like, and I remember thinking like, oh man, I should call those guys and see if they would do this interview with Black Sabbath. That'd be pretty neat. And so I literally just called their production office. I talked to some assistant. I told her who I was and I said, here's what I'm trying to do. And I got a call back an hour later from Matt saying, dude, fuck yeah, let's do it. We're in. <laughs> so I was like, great. It was that easy. Um, and also the other reason I'm super envious, because that's a fucking awesome story, is uh, South Park. For me, I was born in 89. So by the time South Park came out, I think 80, 98 it came out. Uh, I was only a kid. I was playing, I specifically remember, I played travel basketball my whole uh, adolescence and childhood. And uh, we were staying in a hotel, me and the team, the parents, the parents were all together doing whatever. Me and all the kids on the team got in one room, watched a South Park movie. Now, I mean, like, whether the parents were aware of that, I don't know, but I specifically remember almost every sleepover. Somehow I watched that movie, and it was just like... (laughs) My parents weren't, like, cool with just, like, say fucking shit and say whatever you want. Because I, I was, like, 10 or 11. Um, that, like, it's a cartoon. How bad could it be? <laughs> that was in the Guinness Book uh, world, uh, world Record of having the most swears in an animation film ever. I don't know if it yeah. still does. But it, it's just the silliest movie. And I don't know how you feel about this, but when I see things about people just seriously getting pissed about that show i just think you're exactly the type of people that the matt and trey target make fun of yeah yeah and that's a show that could never if they wanted they could do it until the day they die because it's also it's social commentary they they just might i mean look at look at at the simpsons that's you know i mean 30 30 something years why not just keep going like it's you know making money so who cares um, now changing uh, gears for something, I actually was curious because it kind of it, it, it's I don't know if the creator meant to do this, but it's commentary on basically making films in L.A. Um, there's this film that I reviewed. It's the first film I reviewed for uh, my platform called Green Light, starring Chase Williamson, Chris Brown's in it. And the horror queen, Caroline, uh, I might have fucked up the first name, Caroline Williams from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Um, it's called Green Light. came out last year uh, or this year. I Honestly, time's just morphed together, so I don't yeah. know. But Especially now, yeah. It's basically about um, a guy that just, he's a director. He keeps doing shorts. He wants a feature. He doesn't have the money for it. Um but he's got this one guy, played by Chris Browning, who says, listen, I'll back you up. And then eventually, I, I think this is in the synopsis, makes him, he puts him in a situation where he has to do something pretty fucked up and he can't get out of it. 
and he's going to finish this film. And the fucked up thing is, is going to happen while he's filming. Um, it's, it's engrossing. I'm, I'm curious. Interesting. I'm wondering if you've even, if you've heard of that, because I don't know, especially with the pandemic, because it was like, I think it was supposed to be out on the, um, the circuit, the, uh, the film festival circuit. But I, I mean, obviously I don't think that happened. No, I've never heard, I've never heard of it, but it sounds, it sounds pretty interesting. It's, uh, yeah, Chase Williamson. I don't know if either one of you heard of him, but he's in John Dies at the End. Um, he's in a lot of other movies that, a lot of other horror movies that are, are they're fun movies. There's this one, and I'll, uh, last thing I want to say about this is, this one that came out last year called Arctic. Um, it's the most, uh, 180 degree, uh, 180 degree change from Chase's other films where he's normally like a regular guy in most of his films and just he's put in a really fucked up scenario. In Arctic, he plays this kind of a trashy white guy, but he gets mixed up with a serial killer and it's like extreme horror and it's just, if you get a chance to watch a film and you That's want... That's not the one with, what's his face? The guy from Hannibal, is it? You're, uh, man, uh, yeah, Mans Mandelson or something weird like that. No, the the, the actor I've never seen him before oh, this okay. film. His name's Jerry G. Angelo. Oh, okay. But if you're ever looking for like a horror that's Arctic, it's called a Arctic. A R T I K. Uh, oh, Arctic. Yeah, I don't. I'm thinking Art Arctic, like the Arctic, like the North. Oh Pole. no, yeah, oh, okay. sorry, Arctic. All right. I never learned how to talk properly. No, it's a weird word. It's a made up, made up word. I'm still hung up on the peach mode. <laughs> Although you did say you were born in 89, so I mean, I guess you get a little bit of a pass there. Brennan texted me and was like, <laughs> you said this, basically implying I'm a fucking idiot and I don't blame him. Um, so I would love to talk about something that I bit my tongue on from not texting you, Philip, because I love telling people how if I unless I don't really talk to them regularly or whatever, I love telling people when I love something they made. Um, so I read I read My Love Do Not Wake and the Review or Die series. Um, yeah. Book one, the Midnight ex, uh, Exhibit. I'm not gonna. How, do you mind just describing that so I don't give anything away? That's a messed up. <laughs> that's a messed up story, isn't it? Um, I fucking well, the, love it. Well, the the elevator pitch is uh, a woman has an affair with the back of her husband's head. <laughs> right. So I don't know. It conjures up very different images than the story goes, but okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, Brandon, what's your take on it? Without giving uh, anything away. Uh, my take on it is that what Philip, the, the elevator pitch that we just got is technically accurate, but that you should, abs- <laughs> <laughs> but you should absolutely read it for yourself. Um, yeah. so for those who don't know that that book also has a story by Stephen Graham Jones in it. Um, and off the top of my head, I think it's Renee Miller, maybe Renee Miller. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. She also had a really, really good story in that. Um, so I, I'm curious because I, I kind of want to leave it at just the elevator pitch. How did you um, get invited or hooked up to work in that kind of mini anthology? Oh, so uh, Eddie Generous is the editor and publisher of 
unnerving press. It's his, that's his, he's the, uh, it's his, uh, thing. And he and I did a book, I think in 2018 called overnight, which was a standalone, which was a standalone chap book. I can show you a picture of it for those. See, that's, so that's overnight. Um, it's a limited edition hardcover, um, that Eddie put out, uh, through unnerving press. And, um, and I, I, I don't remember, I don't remember how we had connected before that. I think he might have, I think he just read my, my collection and, and wanted to know if I would do something with him. And I did. Um, so we published that. And so when he did this re, re, whatever it's rewind or die, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have it right here. Uh, what is this thing called? Uh, Minute Exhibit One. I, I don't know what the name of the, the the thing is he sells, but Minute Exhibit Volume One. Yeah. So, um, this is the book. So, um, yeah. So he asked me if I wanted to be part of it, and I give him a story, and I said yeah. And um, so I wrote, I wrote, my love, do not wake. Um, and uh, that idea. I don't even know how I came up with that idea. I'm trying to remember if it normally I can kind of pinpoint the moment um, where like it kind of took root. Uh, I don't even know. I do remember. I think my wife just got home. I'll, but I do remember uh, my wife coming into my office and I was saying, I'm going to start working on a new story. And it's about this woman who falls in love with and has an affair with the back of her husband's head. And I remember her just going, all right, well, I'm going to go downstairs now and <laughs> fix dinner and whatever. And you just do whatever that is you're doing. But, um, yeah, it's a weird story. Um, um, and, uh, and I was happy to have Eddie publish it and hopefully I'll collect it one day and then in a collection or something. But, um, yeah, it's kind of a wild ride. So, um, I don't know really know what else to say about it, but yeah, it's, 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 it's just, it's sort of surrealist horror. It's sort of, it's sort of got kind of a little no, crime noir feel. It's got a little surrealist feel. It's got a little horror feel. It's kind of dark humor, I think at times, um, as the husband deals with what's happening to him. Um, so yeah, I, uh... I like it. It's, it's kind of a weird story. I've gotten, I, I, I feel like it's gotten mixed reviews, so I'm always happy to hear people people who enjoyed it. I finished it this morning um, because uh, that was my first uh, story by you, and uh, Brennan suggested it to me. I'm glad he did. Uh, I can't compare it to anything that I've read before, and I just I loved it, and I'll leave it at that. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. It makes me certainly want to read more by you. Um, and something that I think I pointed out before in the podcast, even if I didn't read that before, if I'm listening to this show, uh, I would want to read something by you because that's the whole point of this podcast, or at least it mm-hmm. was. That was the sole purpose in the beginning. It's kind of evolved, but um, it's to get to know the creator behind art, and it's not just writers. It's We're going to eventually have other people, but um, I find that when i listen to a creator and it my personal love started with joe rogan's podcast um mm-hmm. just listen to scientists listen to artists listen to whomever i want to learn more about them if they're a nice person because there's plenty of smart people um 
The one exception to someone that's a smart person that I would want to listen to no matter what uh, and maybe get to know and not not piss him off is Steve Jobs, but he's not alive anymore because that right. guy's just like so interesting. But um, yeah, I would want to read more stories by you just by listening to the show. Um, and that's what I get with uh, Ink Heist. Uh, that's what I get with This Is Horror. I actually listened to your three-part show, too. That was interesting. Um, and oh, yeah, absolutely. The one thing I want to take away from that is, uh, we share a fascination with death and, um, I think about it all the time. It sounds morbid, but we're, <laughs> we're horror writers. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, you can say stuff like that. It's okay. It's <laughs> a great thing and, about horror writers. And I'm just curious, as far as, uh, that fascination goes, is it more of what's life going to be like after me or what am I going to experience? Or is it more so, um, what am I going to leave behind and will anyone give a fuck besides my family? Or is it a mix of any of that? Um, it's less of a fascination with death and more of a fascination to your point of after death. Um, and I've read a lot of books on the subject and I have a lot and I've read a lot of theories on the subject. And I just the idea of transferable energy um, is very interesting to me. And the idea that, um, you know, of what goes on, um, what goes beyond the veil, as it were, um, is very fascinating to me. And I've written a lot of stories about about the afterlife. I've written a lot of stories about what happens to people when they when they die, I think if there's a recurring theme in a lot of my stories, it's that I take people beyond death. Um, even if it's only for, you know, a split second or for you know half a page or whatever. But, um, yeah, so I, I have a fascination with it. I'm fascinated by, um, all the different, all the wide variety of beliefs about what happens when we die. Um, all the wide variety of religions that have different takes on it. Um, the, 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 you know, scientists who have different takes on, on it, you know, maybe we should say, you know, metaphysical scientists, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's just something that's, uh, I've always found really fascinating. Um, and I think it's also incredible fodder for stories. You know, I think it's, um, such a fun thing to play with and, um, and not just to kill people and then send them into an afterlife situation, but also to play with the idea of um, how someone's life is affected by what might happen to them when they die or by other people who may have gone before them coming back, whether it's a ghost story or whether it's some sort of cosmic energy or whether it's some sort of communication from beyond. Um, these are all things that I love to, to write about. And, um, and in a way it's kind of almost, there's a bit of an element of that in my love do not wake, you know, which is, uh, you know, in a lot of ways without no, I guess I don't want to give, I don't want to, I don't want to give it, you know, I want to be spoiler free, but you know, there's definitely an element of like, um, what, you know, how life can go on in that story, you know? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. so, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's just something that fascinates me. It's just for whatever reason, it's, it's a recurring theme. Um, I kind of, you know, I enjoy describing, um, this sort of like alternate dimension um, of where the soul ends up and and um, and uh, yeah like some sort in some stories it's it's a very negative thing and in some stories it's a very positive thing 
And in some stories, it's very ambiguous. So it's kind of it's not something that I kind of I don't have a one note reply to. It's something I kind of play with a lot in the different in the different stuff I do. Which is well, that's a good thing because like let's just go through a quick timeline of human history. I mean, before the biggest religion in this country, uh, Christianity, there was thousands of religions throughout the world. You know, you got the Aztecs, the Mayans, uh, ancient Egypt, throughout Asia. They all believed in multiple, multiple deities or gods. Um, there's one, and someone may butcher me for fucking this up, but I saw a documentary on ancient Egypt. And I don't know what the specific religion was called, but it was the most <laughs> bizarre religion that I heard of how things were created. There was one god that masturbated, and he made deities, lesser yeah. power gods, and they fucked, and they were lesser power gods, and it went on until humans came around. Mm. I, yeah. I mean, I mean, who knows what happened? <laughs> that well, might be it. I'll tell you what's really interesting about some of that stuff is that I was reading a book recently that talked about how, um, and the, like one example is the flood, but how, how, how often there are similar, how many similarities there are between all these different religions and, and, and groups of people uh, and cultures who have never interacted before um, and who have had no interaction and who all have different histories and, and different, you know, different geographical locations. But so many of the stories are the same. And the flood is an example where, you know, the flood one, you know, people would like to say, well, the flood was copied by Christianity, you know, um, but the, but the reality is that there were four or five major world religions that all have some version of the, of the story of the flood of Noah's Ark. And obviously the, the, the details vary, but the, but the fact that the world was taken over in a flood is 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 um, is in all these um, different religions histories. And so it's really and so there's a lot and there's a lot of other um, uh, there's a lot of other uh, examples of that where they have very similar like the son of God being sacrificed and all like Egypt, you know, Christianity, people say, well, it, you know, is based on on Egypt, the son of Ra and all that stuff. But. But the timeline doesn't work out that way. The timeline works out that actually they should have all been – they're all actually pretty si- simultaneous. So – but yes, it's it's an intri- it's a fascinating um, – it's a fascinating uh, thing to dive into um, and, uh, you know, all the different cultures and what they all believed and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, history becomes – like I say at the very beginning, you know, history becomes horror. And, um, and a lot of horror is exploring these very uncomfortable ideas and very uncomfortable scenarios – and um and how and how how it affects everyday people yeah uh i'd be really interested to see if there was like a, a scientific or whatever the proper terminology is trend of what led up to that flood if that if there's even a way to possibly um trend that and then see if there's a comparison in nowadays how there's a shift in a lot of things like there's um uh, what is it? Uh, we're, we're seeing like sharks or other aquatic life um, closer to shores because basically humans are fucking everything up. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that's not what happened like 2000, whatever years ago, but I'd be curious to see if there's any correlation from a major flood to maybe something that we're replicating. Um, and if there is, what's that, what's that mean for all of us? Yeah. 
Um, we could use a good flood right about now. <laughs> let, let's shift to one more thing. Uh, something that you gave me permission on is future films, books, or other endovers. I know you got one announcement. Yes, yes. So I'm very excited. So, um, and I'll probably be announcing it on social media over the next couple of days. Um, but so right now I have, currently I have one book on the, on the market, which is Behold the Void. Um, I'm in a bunch of anthologies and stuff like that, but my, my own, the only book you know, that I have is, uh, of my own stuff is Behold the Void, which is a collection of stories. Um, and so I just signed a deal with Levy Press, L-E-T-H-E, um, which is run by a guy named Steve Berman. And we are going to be putting out a new collection um, in the summer of 2021. And it's going to be called Beneath a Pale Sky. And it'll be a collection of eight new stories. Or I should say, collect eight stories, seven of which have been previously published in different, you know, in anthologies or magazines. Um, but one of which is it will be original to the book. So, and Steve is also going to be taking over um, as publisher for my current book, Behold the Void. So it'll get um, currently Behold the Void is being is published by um, Lovecraft Easing Press, um, who are great. Mike's great. Mike Davis is great to work with, but he has sort of a limited dis- distribution uh, 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 function. So. Um, Steve is going to take over uh, Behold the Void and it's going to get more widely distributed to bookstores and libraries and 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 um, and then also be publishing the new collection Beneath the Pale Sky. And they'll probably be sort of a they'll probably be designed in such a way that there'll be sort of a companion set. Um, Behold the Void is going to stay with the stay looking exactly like it is right now. But um, Beneath the Pale Sky will be sort of you know, made to, to, to have similar, um, design aspects of it. And then Steve is also going to be re reissuing my out of print novella, Saculina, which is, um, which is a horror story about a, a group of guys on a, on a fishing boat who get, um, slowly, uh, attacked, uh, methodically attacked by mutant barnacles, uh, so that's a fun that's a fun read. And so so uh, so I'll have three books out by Leth Press. My original collection, Behold the Void, uh, Saculina, which is a reissue of a novella that went out of print about a year ago, and um, and then the new book will be Beneath a Pal Sky. So when, I'm very excited about that. Sorry about that. Um, um, yeah, that's I mean you got me hooked on the guys getting killed by barnacles. Like yeah, man, I let me. Let me read that right now. <laughs> but seriously, uh, when is the announcement going to be? Well, we originally were going to announce it tomorrow. Um, so that may still be the case. It's really up to Steve um, being the publisher. So I'm probably going to be, yeah, probably be, it'll be this week. It'll be either tomorrow, Wednesday, the 17th of June or, um, or the following Thursday or Friday. But originally we talked about it being tomorrow, but that said, as of right now, eight o'clock i have not heard from him so it might be something that we do on thursday or friday so if i release this episode a week before which would be this friday which i could do if you're okay with that would i be able to release this this friday without messing anything up for him yes it's fine yes yes absolutely yeah all right so i'm gonna release this episode in three days then (laughs) yeah that'd be great yeah and then you can 
you'll be riding right on top of that news that um, I'll be posting hopefully in the next couple of days. So that's um, yeah, that's why I don't want I don't want to wait too long for a lot of reasons with that. Yeah, and it'd be uh, great to push the uh, always great to push the uh, the fundraiser too. So that's doubly good. Yeah. Um, so I just had two more questions, uh, and I appreciate you giving us your time. No worries. Um, for anyone, and kind of a selfish question too, for anyone that has not read a novel by you, or maybe you'll suggest the short story that me and Brennan read in the Midnight Exhibit, um, what story or novel or novella would you suggest someone reads uh, for the first time by you? Well, um, per my comment earlier about how everyone seems to have a different favorite story, um, it's hard to say, but the, the, the only things I have in print right now are Behold the Void, and then there's also a novella called Shiloh, which is um, Lovecraft Ezine published, and which people seem to really, really, really like. So I think you could go, if you just want like one long story, um, longish story, uh, I would suggest buying Shiloh, which is um, a story of, uh, it takes place during the Civil War about twin brothers who fight for the Confederate uh, army and who get entangled with um the union army at the battle of shiloh um but then the supernatural hijinks ensue and it becomes a horror story um that's gotten really strong reviews and um or i would definitely suggest just buying behold the void and then you have my first collection of stories um get all you know nine stories in that book um i think either one of those is a great way to start the uh Novel, I don't have any novels published. Um, like I said earlier, there are three novels that I have. My agent is currently uh, selling. So I don't foresee um, any of those hitting, uh, you know, seeing the light of day probably for at least a year. Because um, even if I were to sell one tomorrow, it would be a year before it would be released. So um, so right now, it's the collection, the story collection is probably the, the best book to focus on. Okay. Um, and where can people follow you? Um, I am on Facebook. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook. You can uh, follow me on Twitter. Facebook is just Philip Fricasi. Twitter is at Philip Fricasi. Um, and I'm also on Instagram. Same thing. I think it's at P Fricasi on Instagram. You can also go to my website, uh, either you know pfricasi.com or philipfricasi.com. They both work. And um, and I have links to my social media stuff there as well okay and, and i have is, a newsletter and i have a newsletter as well that you can access to my website as well if you're interested in getting a newsletter every month or two very sure. regularly oh and i do also have a patreon which okay and uh if you go to patreon if you go to patreon.com uh, patreon, uh, com, you can just search my name um and you can join my patreon if you want to that is philip P-H-I-L-I-P, not two L's, which is exactly how my son's name is spelled. Best oh, way great. to do it. <laughs> Best way to do it, absolutely. <laughs> and your last name, Fricassi, F-R-A-C-A-S-S-I. Yep, correct. Perfect. Brennan, you got any final questions? No, I, I just want to say thank you for your time. We're well over two hours now. You've been very generous with it. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, we started off with that whole uh, spiel about putting together the um, the horror writers for Black Lives Matter. Um, I want to say thanks again for just kind of taking that initiative and really 
uh, bringing a little bit of unity to the entire community and raising an awful lot of money for a very good cause right now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm very I'm very appreciative that the community was so supportive of it, and I hope that they continue to uh, continue to support it. And you know, that's that's something where we need to make an impact, and we need to make you know the change needs to happen. And um, and I you know and I just hope that in some small way that you know it it um, it helps. That's all you can hope for. And it's reasons like that that, and I've seen a few people say this, which is a bummer, but whatever. Uh, that uh, the horror community isn't really a community; it's just a gathering of like-minded people. Which to me is that's that's what a community is, isn't it? Yeah, um, every time there's something bad, we covered this already, so I'm not going to reiterate. We come together, we cheerlead each other. If there's a not so nice person, let's call them a crazy mustache villain, they usually get kicked out or called out. And we go back to talking about scary things. So mm-hmm. you are the latest installment as to why, and you highlighted how this is a um, horror is a great thing. People that oh, love it are loving. Um, they do the right thing. We are for Black Lives That Matter. Our statements were made with Todd Keeslin's episode. And we're frankly strongly opposed to anyone that isn't for it because it's just like Brennan nailed it. You can't be quiet with certain things. Uh, it's not right to have people having uh, everything stripped from them, and we're over here just like, fuck it, whatever, it's not affecting us. But you right. took initiative. So for that, we thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you. Absolutely, and thank you for your time. And um, I, re- I meant it when I said it. Your story hooked me. Uh, I plan on reading more by you, and uh, we – I think it's safe to say I could speak for Brendan on this part. We hope to have you back here. Of course, anytime. And you can also, um, just in case you're an audio fan, uh, I have two stories up on Tales to Terrify. Um, or you can listen if you want to listen to the stories instead. Um, the Rejects and a story called, um, uh, I can't remember. It's on Tales to Terrify. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember any of my own stories now. But yeah, so, and, uh, and Behold the Void is also available as an audiobook. So perfect. Um, yeah, it, this has been a great time, man. It's felt like a really good episode. It was fun. There were some serious topics that still need to be talked about and hopefully yeah. get fixed in our lifetime. Yeah, for sure. Um, keep up the great work and we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. Thanks, man. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving. Deadhead space.